Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, buffer strips in Minnesota, the growing problem of sex trafficking in the state's Indian tribes, and a contract extension for twin skipper Paul Molitor. But first, here's Tasha Radel with a report on Domestic Violence Awareness Month. The Minnesota Coalition for Battered Women wants every Minnesotan to recognize that domestic violence happens here in every city, township, and county in the state. Joining me now is Becky Smith, the Coalition's Program Manager in Public Awareness. Well, wanted to visit with you a little bit, Becky, and talk about uh, we're in the month of October, and it's Domestic Awareness Violence Month. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about this month and uh, some of the things that you folks are doing or the messages you're wanting to get across when it comes to, uh, I, I guess, raising awareness on this important topic? Certainly. So October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and this year we're actually um, celebrating 30 years of this month. It started in October 1987 by the National Coalition, um, and it was started to draw attention to domestic violence, um, specifically to mourn those who have died due to domestic violence, celebrate those who have survived domestic violence, and to connect those who work to end violence. So 30 years later, we are really looking to expand our idea of this month and what it can mean. So it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but we are also calling it Domestic Violence Action Month as a way to get people involved in ending domestic violence in our communities. Um, Some of the ways that we encourage people to participate this month is, of course, getting connected with their local domestic violence program. Programs across the state are having a series of events. Some of these events include um, dinners or drives or there's some 5Ks, some really fun run walks. Um, So we really encourage people to figure out where the domestic violence program is in their community and see what's going on. Um, We're also encouraging people to have important conversations with people in their life. Uh, For example, having a conversation with your brother or your son about domestic violence and how you can get involved in volunteering or um, talking about healthy relationships with young people in your life. And, you know, you're talking a little bit about, uh, you know, remembering those victims. Um, Mm -hmm. I know you folks uh, uh, track, you know, track that uh, every year. Where are Mm -hmm. we at this year, uh, Becky? Sure. Uh, This year, we know that at least 14 people have died due to domestic violence in Minnesota of the most recent victims, Michelle Lee and Vanessa Danielson, um, both of Minneapolis. And, you know, for somebody listening, perhaps that is um, a victim of domestic violence or uh, someone that knows of a friend or just uh, not sure what to do, uh, any advice uh, for them on where they could reach out to for services? Certainly. So we do have the Day One hotline. That number is 866 
That's 866-223-1111. And that's a number that anyone can call to get connected to a domestic violence program. That's not just for seeking shelter or if... If someone is seeking shelter, you can definitely call that program, um, that number. But it's also to get connected to an advocate. Uh, if you're concerned about someone, you can get to connected to an advocate, and they can walk you through um, ways that you can support that person in your life. And if you do know someone who is experiencing violence in their relationship and you want to support them, the first and most important thing to do is to listen to them and to believe them. Just let them know that you're there to support them without judgment. And then whenever they are ready to receive resources, have that number on hand and let them know that you're there for them. And, you know, Becky, um, I I don't know if this is still the case, but it seems like there's sometimes a stigma around uh, um, domestic violence. And oftentimes, uh, maybe I shouldn't use the word often, but in some instances that people just look the other way because they don't want to to get involved. Do you folks encourage people to get involved, I guess? Certainly. I think that often we think of domestic violence as a private matter, a matter um, within one home. But we know that domestic violence is actually a community matter. The people who are experiencing domestic violence are our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers, and the people who are abusing someone. They're also our friends, our neighbors, our family members, and our coworkers. And what we need to do is really step up, have the hard conversations, you know, say, I, I'm really concerned about your behavior and why are you treating this person in your life this way? And step up and say, I really believe that you are experiencing violence in your relationship. I'm concerned for you, and I want to be there for you. So just having those conversations and letting people know that you're aware of what's going on, that is something we absolutely encourage. Thanks again to my guest, Becky Smith, with the Minnesota Coalition for Battered Women. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. A Senate committee in Washington recently heard from experts about the growing problem of sex trafficking in the nation's Indian tribes. Executive Director of the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition, Nicole Matthews, was at the hearing. I chatted with her about what's being done to help the women and children most impacted by this troubling trend and what lawmakers can do to make a difference. We really have a lack of information, and um, so they were really pushing... One of the recommendations is really to push the Department of Justice to collect data. Um, And then they also talked about the lack of response. So there had only been like 14 investigations of human trafficking in Indian country and only two that went on, I believe, for um, prosecution. And so they had someone there from um, Bureau of Indian Affairs to address some of the investigation, and then I was there specifically to speak more to um, needs of victims and spoke about information that we learned because our Garden of Truth report is one of the only or the only report of its kind that really um, talked to 
Native women survivors of sex trafficking. Nicole, in spite of that lack of information that you mentioned, from what I understand, there there is information that, that says tribal women and children are suffering at a higher rates than the general population or, or victimized more often by sex trafficking. Do we know why that is? Well, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, things that correlate or um, reasons. You know, there's jurisdictional complications and issues that need to be addressed. So um, currently, tribes don't have jurisdiction over non-Indian offenders of sexual violence or sex trafficking. Um, Through the Tribal Law and Order Act that President Obama um, enacted a few years ago, we have tribes are just now getting jurisdiction over um, non-Indian offenders of domestic violence. But when it comes to sex trafficking and sexual violence, tribes don't have any recourse. And so if the feds or the states are not picking up these crimes and investigating them, if they don't have a great relationship with the tribe, virtually nothing is happening. I know that there has been a a concerted effort and that they've been uh, tracking data on homelessness uh, in tribes, at least throughout Minnesota. Is there some uh, sort of uh, template that that can be followed from progress that's being made in that area that could be somehow used for sex trafficking, do you think? I think it's a challenge because, so what I've heard from some of the federal officials when they talk about data collection is, and, and some of what I've heard from service providers is that some of the challenges are who identifies as being Native American and how are they being identified? So is it self-selection? Are they saying, yes, I'm Native American? Um, is it facial, you know, like are people looking at someone and saying, oh, that person must be Native American? Because um, we've heard in some areas that, you know, law enforcement or other systems providers are um, deciding whether someone's, Native American by looking at them, um, and oftentimes they, you know, tell, um, say they're another race, maybe Hispanic or um, African American or or something else, and so those are some of the I think some of the complications that we've heard, and I think like some of what they were pushing the Department of Justice to do. Now they, Department of Justice. Um, oversees the Office on Violence Against Women, which um, administers many federal grants to Indian country to address um, violence against women. And they want to force all service providers to, to collect that data, and which I don't think is a great practice at this point because most of our programs are not providing services for sex trafficking victims. And so if you just ask, hey, are you... Um, have you been victimized by sex trafficking? And someone says yes, but you don't have any services to provide. It can cause more harm. So I think that has to be taken into consideration. And we really just we really need more funding streams specifically to address sex trafficking, so we can really start to address the issue. Senator Al Franken serves on the bipartisan Indian Affairs Committee. It is such a such a problem that's that that runs so deep. And if you look at during this hearing, we kind of went over the history of trauma in Indian country. It goes back so far. There's historical trauma, of course. There's also 
because of that and because of the high unemployment and there's domestic violence, drug use, et cetera, that exposure to that kind of trauma makes someone vulnerable to this. And they are young women and uh, sometimes girls and sometimes boys. And there is drugs involved in this almost all the time. And there are all kinds of issues of uh, women who've been trafficked, who don't trust authorities, and who have some loyalty for God knows what reason to their to the guy who's trafficking them. This is a very, very deep problem. We do need data. We do need data to attack it more. I mean, Cindy McCain was one who testified on this committee, and she has been actually done uh, studies or been involved in, in studies on on this during Super Bowls. So, and I know Amy Klobuchar, who is written legislation that I've co-sponsored on trafficking, has worked with Cindy on this very issue. But we, we need to, uh, we have a Super Bowl coming up. We need to address that. Returning again to Nicole Matthews, I wondered if there was sufficient assistance for victims of sex trafficking in tribes. Well, they have, like I said, there's not a lot of funding streams specifically to address sex trafficking. So um, the Office on Violence Against Women and the Office for Victims of Crime, they both provide funding for tribes to address violence against women. And the, the funding says you can address victims of sex trafficking with us. But I think the problem is that so you, these are programs that are serving victims of domestic violence, sometimes sexual violence, and then to add services for sex trafficking but not to increase the funding is a problem, right? And so most programs are not serving victims of sex trafficking. You know, we have a, through the Office on Violence Against Women, we're a technical assistance provider to help tribes to build their response to sex trafficking. But what we're seeing is it's really at the beginning stages. And just think that anything that we do, we need to keep survivors' voices and um, survivors' needs at the center of that. And, you know, I think when we do that, then we can come up with great solutions. Thank you again to my guest, Nicole Matthews. I'll be following up with her in the months ahead to see what kind of progress is being made. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The November 1st deadline is fast approaching for farmers to comply with Minnesota's new law that requires buffer strips along all public waters to reduce runoff from fields into rivers and lakes. Officials say over 94% of land parcels subject to the new law are in compliance. MNN's Bill Werner is here with more about that, plus another controversial ag-related issue that's still simmering. Bill? Scott, officials say of a half million parcels in Minnesota that are subject to the new buffer law, about 30,000 remain out of compliance, but they expect some of those situations will be corrected before the November 1st deadline. About 700 landowners have received extensions. State Agriculture Commissioner Dave Fredrickson pleased with the progress. We've come a long way since the Pheasant Summit in Marshall when the governor announced he would uh, pursue legislation to move us in this direction. Uh, I've always felt that uh, we are a headwater state. I don't feel it. That is a fact. But I felt that we have an obligation, and Minnesota farmers and ranchers understand that. 
Uh, sure, they grumble a little bit. There's no question about that. But at the end of the day, I think the 94% was indicative of how uh, farmers have actually stepped up, farmers and ranchers have stepped up uh, to do the right thing. Uh, I'm also uh, proud of the work that uh, DNR has done in responding to uh, concerns. You've made changes on nearly 3,000 of those, which is a uh, means that the department was extremely responsive to concerns that were registered at their, that level. So I'm pleased with the program. I hope that we can continue to move forward with the Minnesota Ag Water Quality Program. It's a success, and uh, we can just continue to be successful if we continue to enroll farmers. They ask for certainty. They get certainty under this program if they uh, score 8.5 or better on the tool that we've developed and establish BMPs on the land. They'll have certainty from any new regulation for the next 10 years, and that's something that uh, they appreciate. That's State Ag Commissioner Dave Fredrickson. Water quality is one of Governor Mark Dayton's legacy issues, and he had a tough battle with the legislature over these buffer laws, particularly since Republicans took control of both the Minnesota House and Senate. So where to from here? We asked Fredrickson about that. Commissioner, you're kind of in the position where, where you are in the middle between farmers and, and, and others sometimes, and, and even you've even been in the middle between farmers and the governor, I think it might be fair to say. Uh, but but what what is on the on the horizon line, and what what real what is realistic in terms of uh, uh, something that farmers would go along with uh, beyond the current measures? Or I mean, you know, the governor has talked. I think that he wants to be even more aggressive than this long term. Uh, so where is the whole thing headed? Do you think? I guess only time will tell. But uh, keep in mind, it's. Uh 15 months to the end of his administration and one legislative session away, and it's going to be a short session, so I doubt that you're going to see any new proposals that will make substantive change to what we're doing right now with with buffer practices and our ag water quality certification program that generally has uh, pretty widespread support. Um, The one issue that continues to come up is uh, our approach to developing a rule on uh, on uh, uh, nitrogen fertilizer management. And so we're in the process of doing that. We've uh, gone through an informal uh, hearing process. We will uh, put out a draft rule here within the next probably four to six weeks. Uh, It will have a a good amount of common sense uh, in it. You know, this law that gives us the ability to do it is 28 years old, Bill. Uh, it was Senator Morris's law, uh, bill in 1989. I was a member of the legislature at the time and supported it. Uh, so we're going to be uh, looking at practices that uh, that don't degrade uh, our our water supply as it relates to nitrogen uh, fertilizer. That's the one thing I think that uh, you know we'll be. Uh, focusing our attention on both from a farmer perspective and from a department perspective. Do you think that uh, th- this proposed rule uh, is going to have a significant effect on uh, the use of uh, fertilizer in residential properties, uh, you know, suburban areas I'm talking about, and, and, and urban areas as well as agriculture? Well, uh- you know, we, we already do some of that. I mean, you can't buy a, a DAP or MAP with uh, phosphate in it in, uh, in the Twin Cities today. Uh, you see zero uh, where that uh, phosphate uh, number should be. And so uh, that's being done. Uh, 
I know that farmers say, well, you know, uh, what about them? And I hate to see that because it continues to pit uh, urban dwellers against farmers. Uh, I've always said that uh, let's all be part of the solution. Uh, let's work together to make sure that the water that moves on uh, out uh, the Minnesota or the three major watersheds in Minnesota uh, are as clean as we can uh, we can make them. And so I think we have a certainly something to be really proud of in that we are probably the only state in the nation that will be uh, able to stand up and say with a certain amount of pride that every waterway in Minnesota is buffered. That's State Ag Commissioner Dave Fredrickson. Governor Dayton recently wrapped up a series of water quality town hall meetings across the state, and we can expect some new initiatives coming out of that. But as the commissioner noted, the governor is in the final year and a few months of his term. That plus Republicans control both the Minnesota House and Senate, and 2018 is an election year. Need I say more? Scott? I get the message loud and clear, Bill. Thank you for that report. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Minnesota Twins rewarded manager Paul Molitor with a three-year contract extension this week. Molitor guided the Twins to the American League wildcard game where they lost to the Yankees. Molitor's contract expired at the end of the year, so it wasn't a foregone conclusion that he would return even with the postseason berth. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm has some details. Scott, Molitor says they hammered out the deal over the past weekend. I think it was probably a matter of... Uh, less than 10 hours after we landed uh, from New York at 4 or 5 in the morning that we got together and uh, began the conversation. There were some reports that were very premature. Obviously, a contract is important, and there were some aspects of that that needed to be addressed, and it took some time. There was a lot of activities through the weekend that separated us from being able to do it hour to hour. And so, you know, in my mind, taking four or five days on a major decision for both the club and myself, that that shouldn't be that unexpected. I just think there was a lot of anticipation of where it was going to go which made it seem like it was a little longer than it actually was. Molitor says he's gotten to know the president of baseball operations, Derek Falvey, and the general manager, Thad Levine, a little bit better, and he likes how they operate. You know, there's there's been things about the growth in the first year that have been very, very positive. I think getting to know each other on a personal level as well as professional level and how we think about the game and how we try to integrate everything involving decisions that are made, um, balance with family, all those type of things. But I think we, the three of us, will agree that, you know, now that we've been able to go over get over the hurdle, if you will, of the first year of, of trying to find a way to build our connection that we're looking forward to the next chapter even more than the first. Molitor says the relationship has been good with those two guys. The one thing that I, I was very uh, thankful for that I, I've never felt meddled in, in terms of how I ran a game or my pitching staff or who I decided to play on a given day, I was given total freedom to do that. And I think that's important for a manager and a staff to be able to have those decisions to stay within the clubhouse. And Falvey says he took a liking to Molitor fairly quickly after he got the job. There aren't as many managers in baseball that live in the city where they manage, you know, or live a 15-minute drive away. That I found to be incredibly helpful during the course of last offseason as we got to know each other and, and build out our roster. Paul and I talk regularly every day during the course of the season. I would imagine pretty close to that through the offseason. Certainly as we're working through free agent discussions and potential opportunities to upgrade our club, we'll have conversations every day, but we'd like continued involvement in the spaces around development. Paul has great ideas around what we can do organizationally. So we view this as a a partnership all the way through. 
Falvey says he knows Molitor's a good baseball man. I think what stands out to me about Paul is how thoughtful he is, how how engaged he is in each conversation, how open he is to different levels of dialogue you know, around team and planning and minor league conversations. There's never a conversation he's not willing to have. So I hope that that continues you know, moving forward. I expect that it will. We'll continue to be open and honest with each other. And I can tell you it, with the backdrop of this year and the, and the challenges of the recognition of transition in any organization, I can't imagine anyone having handled it more professionally than Paul did. Falvey says they'll have a chain of command when it comes to making baseball decisions within the organization. It's critical that there's alignment in decision-making between your baseball operations leadership and what happens down here in the clubhouse. That's the one, in my mind, prerequisite non-negotiable, is that that alignment is there, that you agree, agree on more than you disagree on. I think there are times, certainly, where we'll see things differently. I'm sure we will continue to, but we're going to try and work to make the best decision for the Minnesota Twins, not for me and not for Paul, not for anyone individually. So during the course of the year, it felt like we were building that relationship, and I, I just don't believe that it had to be a view that there was our guy or my guy or otherwise Paul's our guy. Molitor says they now simply need to carry this momentum from this past season into the off season. I think collectively we're just going to do whatever we can to uh, first spend a little time now that we've through this step to you know you, you go through your season review and then you start to make plans and you're never sure how it's going to unfold, but you start to map out a quarter a course of direction that that you think is going to be helpful to you know furthering your goals down the road so there's no telling exactly how that's going to fold out but I know there'll be a lot of time and effort given to make sure we plan that out in the best way that we can and the twins will certainly have high hopes heading into the offseason Scott thank you Mike that's going to do it for this week thank you for listening and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station